So this week is uh, part four of our series in the book of Colossians. I hope you've been falling in love with this letter that Paul wrote to this church in Colossae. If nothing else, I hope you remember this phrase. Christ is greater than Hey, okay, that's pretty good. Most of you know. Let's try it again. Christ is greater than everything. everything. Absolutely. And last time we saw that uh, we saw that when we are a Jesus follower and we've committed to uh, give Christ our lives, the Bible says then we are dead. We just sang about it in that song just a few minutes ago. When he called my name, I came out of that grave. The old us is dead and we are a new creature. The old me is hidden behind Christ now. And the goal is not for me to jump in front of Jesus and try and steal the show. No, we need to kick the old me back into the grave where it belongs. See, at the beginning, we were created in the image of God. And anything that does not look like Jesus, we need to chisel off our lives. Not in our own power, but by the power of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to finish off this letter to the church in Colossae. And you can uh, jump in if you want to look on your phone uh, or in your Bible. In Colossians chapter 3, we'll start in verse 18. But again, we're going to see Paul banging the drum that the gospel changes us, that a relationship with Jesus Christ ought to make us different. We're going to look at these next few scriptures. And as we do, we need to remember that these words are written to a specific people for a specific purpose. These aren't words that just are floating out there in the ether. These are written to real people with real names and real faces. And this letter ends up in these people, Paul, uh, in these people's hands, and Paul is trying to encourage them. And we're going to specifically see that Jesus changes our relationship with people. It's not enough just to have this relationship with Christ, although that's first and that's important. But this relationship ought to change this relationship. And the first relationship Paul addresses is marriage. God cares about our marriages, and he wants them to work and be a picture of the gospel. We see that in verse 18, when it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So let's first uh, talk about this distracting part that maybe has been used in a way that would hurt people. That wives submit to your husbands. This is not a matter of value. This is not a matter of worth. The wife is not inferior or to be domineered by her husband. Galatians 3.28 says it this way. It says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's either, uh, there is no male or female, for you're all one in Christ. What is that saying? It's saying we're all equally valued and loved in Jesus Christ. The Bible even tells us that Jesus is equal to God, but he submitted to the father. So the wife is not a slave, but rather she willfully lets her husband lead like a beautiful waltz. But see, in our culture today, I don't think that this is our issue as much as a lack of men that are willing to step up and be leaders in their family and in the church. Men were quiet. <laughs> I just heard a bunch of women say amen. Amen. Come on. Men, they know it. 
They see it. It ain't a secret. Men, we're cool to show off our, to our sons how to throw a baseball, but not to talk to them about Jesus. We're down to barbecue together as long as we don't have to pray or let anyone know that we're struggling, show any weakness. We're good to come and sit quietly in a worship service as long as no one asks us to lead anything or to be spiritual in any real way. In my opinion, if Paul were to write a letter to the American church, there would be a lot more emphasis on men repenting of their sin of apathy about spiritual things and stepping into being an example of what a spiritual leader should be. In their culture, it was very clear who the leader was supposed to be. And in our culture, men, we have stepped back and we've allowed everyone else to do things. What's the youth doing in the church? What's the women doing in the church? If those two things aren't working, there's probably not getting anything done. It's hard enough to see if we can get men to even come to things, let alone be the leaders that God has made them to be. And Paul does emphasize this in the next verse. He speaks to the women first, and then he speaks to the men. He says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. In Ephesians, Paul says, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That's a sacrificial love. And if a husband is a godly follower of Jesus, it's not going to be hard to want to work with him. If a husband looks like Jesus, it's not going to be hard to want to uh, do together this beautiful dance called marriage. Putting the needs of others first. The gospel should change our relationships. Marriage is gospel reenactment. Sacrificing our wants and our needs for theirs. Just like Jesus was willing to do for us on the cross. Marriage should be a picture of a sacrificial and unconditional love. Next, Paul tells us how being a Jesus follower should change our parenting relationship. Colossians 3, verse 20. Hey, this is a problem with, uh, you know, systematically going through the Bible, right? And going through a whole book of the Bible. I can't skip over this stuff. Don't, don't get mad at me. You know, it's, it's in here. Teenagers, kids, don't get mad at me at this next verse. You ready? Colossians 3.20. Children, obey your parents in everything. Why? For this pleases the Lord. Father, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. It says here, children, obey your parents. You want to know what it means in the Greek? Children, obey your parents. That's exactly what it means. It can't get much simpler. How you treat your parents can bring glory to God. Now, just like we're commanded in Romans 13 to submit to governing authorities, God always comes first. So there may be a time where obeying your parents or the government might mean you would disobey God, and obviously the right choice there is always to obey God. But that most likely is going to be a pretty rare occurrence. So children, obey your parents. But men, next it goes back to us. We like that part of the verse. I'm just beating up men today. You ready? We like that part of the verse. Hey, obey me. But next it says, fathers, don't provoke your children. Don't provoke your children. Why? Because that's not like Jesus. But if a, a, a father is a godly follower of Jesus, it's not hard to want to follow him, right? 
Father, your words have worth. And you need to be careful what you say. If you tell your kids they're worthless, they will believe you. If you tell your kids they're stupid, they will believe you. If you tell your kids they're irresponsible without teaching them how to be responsible, they will most likely fill into those and fit into those words that you give them. And if you're having trouble with your relationship with your kids, a first place to start to ask is, am I provoking them? Am I giving them what they need to become who God made them to be? Or is my pride and stubbornness causing friction and I won't back down? Hey, sometimes the best thing to do as a parent is to admit you're wrong. Sometimes the best thing to do as a parent is to go and apologize to your children. He says here, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Am I doing something that's exasperating my children? Parents, do, you know, uh, do your kids know that you love them? Dads, have you told your children that you're proud of them? Because if you don't have their heart, you don't have much at all. Young people, God did not give you perfect parents to make you happy. He gave you imperfect parents to make you more like Christ. Parents, God didn't give you perfect children to make you happy. He gave you imperfect children to make you more like Jesus and to show the selfless and unconditional love of Christ on display. Family life is gospel reenactment. You're going to notice that there's another side to the coin with all these, right? Wives are to let their husbands lead. Husbands, love your wives fiercely. You may be tempted to be harsh, but remember the example of the love of Jesus on the cross. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't dare your kids to do wrong. Next, he talks about our relationship with those people that are employers over us. In verse 22, it says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are the earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance of your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Here it tells us to work our jobs like we're working for Christ. Not just with outward obedience, but with a willing heart. Not just an employee that kisses up to their boss while they're around, but then talks trash about them when they walk away. See, even if your boss is a jerk, you can show the beauty of the gospel by working for God. You're never going to be treated worse than Christ was treated on this earth. So be forgiving and show grace and and long-suffering. Work for Jesus. If your boss is terrible, work for Jesus instead. And if you do, then any reasonable earthly boss will be completely satisfied. Why? Because your work should be worship. Whatever you do, do it for God. You can serve Jesus through your nine-to-five job. God doesn't give us perfect bosses and co-workers to make us happy. He gives us imperfect bosses and co-workers to make us more like Jesus. Our livelihood should be gospel reenactment. 
What am I saying? I'm saying you are in full-time ministry. You're a missionary to your job, and your work is not a waste. It can be worship. And anything that you have, and this is starting to go away a little bit, but back in the day, if you saw, uh, you know, uh, a, a certain you know, religious leader doing something or saying something some certain way, you'd say, man, that person ought not do that, right? We got higher standards for them because we think we're not in ministry. Hey, maybe I shouldn't be the one that's, you know, telling a dirty joke because I'm, I'm an ambassador for Christ. Maybe, maybe I'm not the one that should be biting people's head off. Maybe I'm not the one that ought to be this and that. Whatever standards you may have that say, oh, a pastor ought not do that. Hey, you ought to look at your own life and say, I am an ambassador of Jesus Christ. I represent Christ. We ought to realize our, uh, we ourselves, the Bible calls us, we are now saints. Yes, you were a sinner, but now you're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and you are a saint. So act like it. Step up into it. Not, not to work your way to heaven or, or anything like that, but because of the great call that is on your life. You're in full-time ministry. J.D. Greer says this, work, marriage, and family can all be laboratories for the gospel where you learn to live like Christ and put the love of Christ on display. Paul wraps up this letter with some prayer requests here at the end in chapter 4, Colossians 4, 2. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, all throughout the Bible, it tells us to, to live in thanksgiving. So thanksgiving's not over, right? Hopefully the way that you ate last week is over, right? You can't do that all the time, but you can live in a way of thanksgiving, I saw somebody share something on Facebook that said, and hopefully you did this, that you're supposed to set your scales back on Thanksgiving Eve, 10 pounds, to make sure that you'd... I definitely needed to do that. But he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving ought to be a normal part of your prayer life. And then Paul asks, he says, at the same time, pray also for us, that God may open up to us a door... For the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul reinforces again how important prayer is. Prayer tunes our heart to God's heart. It helps our heart get on the same page as what God wants us to do. And a great way to launch into prayer, he just told us, is by counting our blessings and being thankful. And then next, Paul says, hey, I'm going to ask you to pray for us. Okay, Paul, what do you need us to pray for? You need, you know, some new clothes, a new chariot, maybe a promotion or a raise, maybe find a good wife. What do you need, Paul? Oh, that's right, Paul, you're in prison. Surely you want us to pray that God would send an earthquake and, and the doors of the prison would open and you'd be able to be free and you could bust out of jail. That's not what Paul asked for. Paul's in prison. And he says, pray that we can share the gospel with these people. Open a door so that we can declare Christ and that he is better than everything. 
Paul says, I'm in prison, but I want to, my main prayer request that I ask that you would pray for me with is that I could articulate the gospel clearly. Is that our go-to when we're in a struggle? Whatever situation, financial, relationship, is that your first go-to? Pray that I can tell the gospel more clearly with my life. He doesn't ask for a prison door to be opened, but a door for the gospel that he may have an opportunity to share with people. Isn't that amazing? Paul's doing his best Jesus impression. He cares more about people coming to Christ than getting out of his bad situation. Next, Paul encourages them to put the gospel first in their lives as well. In verse 5, it says, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. He says here, hey, remember I just talked to you about your marriage. I talked to you about how you parent. I talked to you about how you have a relationship in your workplace. And then he says, look, outsiders, people that are unbelievers are are watching you. Help me to walk in wisdom. You ought to walk in wisdom, making the best use of your time. Letting your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. That means seasoned with the truth. So you may know how to answer each person. Paul tells us to be wise in how you act toward people that may be unbelievers. Why? Because you, whether you like it or not, if you're a Jesus follower, you represent Christ. Well, I'm not up to that. Doesn't matter. I didn't sign up for that. Hey, you got the rest of it. This is part of it. It's on you. This is your job description. You represent Christ. So use your time for the gospel. Use your words for the gospel. Showing grace, but always seasoned with the truth. We need to remember that people draw conclusions about who Jesus is based on the way we as Christians carry ourselves. That's a scary thought, especially in the days that we live right now. Christians are known for their anger and their judgmentalness or the fact that they spread misinformation or that they are more angry about uh, the things that are wrong in this world than they are angry that nobody's doing anything. We don't step up into those problems. We shout at the darkness instead of being the light. We need to remember that people draw conclusions about who Jesus is based on the way we as Christians carry ourselves. Well, God, why did you do it this way? Why are we the messengers? I don't know. I wouldn't have done it this way. I'd have sent the angels. But you're it. You're plan A. There is no plan B. You represent Christ. The way we carry ourselves this week should be informed by this. People may draw conclusions about Jesus this week because of my actions and my words. These thoughts should change us. Christ is better than everything. 
And he ought to change our marriages, our parenting, and our work life. Paul goes and, and finalizes the rest of this letter. He tells the church in Colossae that Tychicus, ah, I messed it up. Tychicus? I don't know. You'll see it in there. <laughs> Tychus, how about that? Is going to work to bring this letter to them. This is a guy that Paul trusts. He says, hey, this guy's going to bring you this letter. He's not going to mess with it. He's, I trust it. And he's sure that his presence is going to bless them. Paul mentions many other people, but I want to focus in on one in verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. That Mark is who I want to talk about for just a second. Paul mentions Mark, also known as John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. John Mark and Barnabas are both significant characters in Paul's story. See, Barnabas and Paul were once partners in the ministry. And they brought John Mark along with them on their first ministry uh, journey, their missionary journey to tell people about the gospel in Syria and in Cyprus and in Asia Minor. So Paul and Barnabas and John Mark go, but John Mark got cold feet. He got scared, and he abandoned Paul and Barnabas shortly into the journey. And when the time came for a second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take Cousin Mark with them again. But Paul wasn't having it at all. And Paul and Barnabas, they went their separate ways over this situation. So Barnabas, he went ahead and took John Mark, and they went on their own missionary trip to Cyprus. Paul picked another person, Silas, to go with him to head out to do the work of the gospel. So years go by. We don't know what happens in the in-between. But by the time we get to the book of Philemon, and, and it's written, Paul calls then Mark a fellow worker. And near the end of Paul's life, Paul sends a request to Timothy from a, Rosen, a Roman prison and says this in 2 Timothy 4.11 says, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in the ministry. See, John Mark's situation here is a beautiful picture of grace and forgiveness wrapped up in the gospel. Mark had gotten scared as a young man and he quit on the people that needed him. He turned his back on the ministry that he was involved in. But that wasn't the end of the story. He doesn't get labeled a quitter. He doesn't get uh, this stamp of quitter on the rest of his life. And you may know already that uh, this same Mark that wrote the Gospel of Mark, outlining the life of Christ from eyewitness accounts, that's the same Mark. John Mark wrote that book after abandoning the missionary trip. And Paul kind of getting a little bit mad at him and saying, I don't know if this is working out. Maybe you've quit on something God called you to do. Maybe that's a lot like you. When you look back on your life and you see some shame and guilt in your past over something that you know you were supposed to do. But don't worry. God's not jumping to label you a quitter. God still wants to use you for something big. Paul writes this letter to the church to warn them 
not to get lured away from the gospel by temporary things or things outside of God's word. We don't need to be part of some secret club or some, have some kind of secret knowledge. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that you need something more than Jesus because Christ is greater than everything. Don't let the methods of worship be the object of your worship. Worship Jesus alone. Christ is better than everything else. Don't seek out mystical experiences. Seek Jesus. We don't need something more. We need more of Jesus. Then Paul remind us in this book that our sin and shame are nailed to the cross. We don't have to pay that debt. Jesus did it for us. The gospel changes our relationships. Marriage and parenting and work are arenas for us to put the gospel on display. This is the letter to the Colossians. That Christ is absolutely greater than everything else. The Richmonds are going to come. Every head bowed and eyes closed. We saw some big thoughts here in this letter, and I encourage you to go back and read it again. This last chapter, well, really chapters three and four. The gospel should change who we are. Having that name of Christ associated with us is a big responsibility. When you call yourself a Christian... When you become a follower of Jesus, that means it ought to change us. It's not a fire escape, get out of hell free card with where we just say a little prayer. It's so much more than that. It's a deep commitment. And if that's you and you've, you've made that choice and you can look back in your past and you remember a time when you committed to be a follower of Jesus and you asked him to forgive you of your sins and, and to save you, that means we've got a responsibility. We represent Christ in our marriages, in our parenting, and in our work life. We ought to be different. you take a minute right now as they quietly play to search your heart and ask yourself, what doesn't line up with the picture of Jesus? Maybe you're here today and you don't know for sure that if you died today that heaven would be your home. Maybe you haven't yet made that choice to become a follower of Jesus. Hey, you could do that today once and for all, and the Advent season is no better time to do that. We're all sinners. We're judgmental. We're critical. We have uh, you know, hateful words that come out of our mouth. We're, we're bitter at times, thought wicked things. We're sinners. There's no way around it. If you're honest with yourself, you know that. Well, that's a problem with us and our relationship with the creator of the universe. 
Because he is holy and he is perfect. But God commended his love towards us in the while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Jesus in our place. That is the gospel. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. See, 2,000 years ago, God in the flesh was born of a virgin. And he walked this earth for 33 years and lived a perfect and a holy life, 100% God, 100% man. And he laid his self down on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. Bible tells us that the wages of our sin is death. The innocent man died for all of us guilty people. But he wasn't just a man, he was God, and he raised himself from the grave three days later. The Bible says, whosoever calls on him shall be saved. You got to know you're a sinner. You got to know there's a penalty for your sin. You got to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the only means of your salvation. You could do that today. You call out to him. The words aren't important. Why don't you call out to God today, right now? Let's go ahead and stand. We'll sing. Before we do, let's pray. Dear Jesus, we love you. God, I pray that you would be pleased and honored in all that we do this week, God. Lord, help people to see Jesus through us, God. Help our patience and long-suffering and our kindness and our love to be a reflection of your love. Now, maybe that means we need to go and apologize to somebody and get that relationship straightened out. God, I pray whatever we need to do that we would represent you and point towards you. In your name we pray. Amen.